Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Michael Dorrit. I think you have to have a passion for what you're doing. You can't just say, I think I, I like that job. It looks like I could make a lot of money. Because yeah, I think you have to put that out of your head if, if you're serious about being uh, an artist of some kind. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Today's special guest is graphic designer Michael Dorrit, the silent giant behind that famous New York Knicks logo. In this interview, I sit down with Michael to chat about his upbringing in Brooklyn, how he got into graphic design, he offers young advice to creatives. We talk about the sacrifices he's made along the way. And of course, we go into that iconic New York Knicks logo. Without further ado, let me introduce you to the graphic designer, my friend, the silent giant, Michael Doyle. Put that out. No, I'm going to keep it in there. All your sniffles. <laughs> my sniffling. <and> my... <laughs> <laughs> Michael, how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me here, Corey. You're a smooth dude. Very dapper guy. Oh, well, that's all Laura, my wife. Laura, you <laughs> did a great job. She's, she's my dresser. She's my stylist. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't have uh, any impression of you uh, upon today. So to see you, you have like that, like Sean Connery, that Sean Connery vibe. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a quote from Sean Connery. <laughs> I can't think of one. Like my mom would think you're cute. My name is Bond. Yeah, there you go. James Bond. You got swag. <laughs> like, I like the frames, like the outfit. Laura's like uh, going, oh, no, he's getting really corny. <laughs> Corny's in right now. Okay. Yeah. Welcome back to New York, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, like, I get back maybe hopefully once a year, or if not more. Okay. Do you miss it? You live I, out in I, LA now. So. I, I do. Well, I, I'm not going to get into the comparing LA to New York. Yeah. Thing yeah. I mean, there's because, no comparison. Because they're completely different animals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's uh, 
you know, when I'm in LA, I, I love it there. When I'm back here, uh, you know, I, I love it. Although, you know, you should ask me again in, after another week here. Cause, uh, <laughs> we were just kind of uh, bucking all the rush hour crowds and, you know, bumping into people and, and so on. And, and that never happens in LA. Right, right, right. No, I enjoy my time out there. It's very relaxing. It's very calm. Yeah. And I, I really that, enjoy that. When we first moved out, I, I felt like I was on vacation all the time, even when I was working, because it was just the weather, the, you know, just the, the, the everything was so laid back. Oh, where, where do you live in L.A.? Uh, we, we recently moved to Pasadena. Okay. We where had, is that in, in terms of, like, the city of, okay, uh, or the, uh, the suburb sprawl of L.A.? I don't know where that is. Uh, you know, West I, of- I, after I've lived there for 25 years, I still don't know all the areas. Uh, people mention all these, you know, names to me, and I, I don't know where they are. But we, when we first, we went to the right to the hub when we first came at, right to the hub when we first came out. Uh, we we lived in Hollywood, okay, uh, and a little bit right near the Hollywood Bowl, okay, yeah, which, which was I was just out there, beautiful area, yeah, which was perfect because you know we could just walk to the bowl, yeah, from where from our house, um, but um, our house was an old uh 1930s uh mediterranean style house and it was just uh it became like a money pit for us it just everything was breaking uh the maintenance it it was just too much and we really had to sell because you know um uh as we're getting older uh our uh, incomes are not what they once were and I, i i don't have all that extra cash to throw into the house all all the time so we we sold and we moved to Pasadena into a condo. Okay. And uh, where we don't have to worry about all the maintenance and uh, no maintenance, nice weather. Yeah, life is good. Yeah. Uh, are you are you born and raised in New York? Are you? Uh, I'm born in uh, born here in Manhattan. Um, lived, uh, grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, where about? Uh, Sheepshead Bay. Oh, that's like true blue Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's typically where like I live in Bed Stuy. Mm-hmm. So. Most of the neighborhoods that are kind of closer to Manhattan are super gentrified and transplant New Yorkers. But if I be someone from like Sheepshead Bay or Bay Ridge, it's well, true blue. Well, that's now, but uh, you know, like uh, there was there was no Williamsburg or you know um, Bushwick. That they were all just neighborhoods where you know people were living and and uh, and no no hipsters or anything like that. What what was um, the vibe like? What, what around what time period did you grow up in? I, I grew up in the fifties. Okay, in Brooklyn, and my area, you were either Jewish or Italian, and that was it. Yeah, you know, and it was it, it really kind of amounted to the same thing. You know, um, all my friends were either Jewish or Italian. Do you remember uh, anything about Ebbets Field? Uh, okay, so my parents were a little bit snobbish about things they were really into classical music and and so on and not into sports or anything so they never took me to ebbets field my friend my best friend's dad took me and i so i I remember i was there twice okay yeah i was there twice what was it like um well that was like another lifetime it's it's hard to remember really i mean uh if if i said anything i'd be making it up but uh, (laughs) oh i know i was there I saw the Dodgers, you know, the Dodgers were like so pervasive of everything in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and, and I still kind of hold it against them that they, they moved. Uh, growing up in Brooklyn at that time, I, I tell this story a lot that I, I grew up near Coney Island mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, my friends and I would bike over there a lot. And, uh, and when you're there, you're surrounded by all, at that time, it was like uh, incredible um, banners and signage and colors and um, the sounds, the smells. And it, it, I, I would just fixate on all these things. And they burned themselves into my, my head, especially all the visual things and, uh, uh, you know, the lettering and, and all that. And um, I think that was the beginning of when I just started to be much more aware of that stuff. My dad worked in Times Square. He worked for MGM, the, the movie company. And I would, uh, you know, sometimes after school, I would take the train into the city and I'd get off at Times Square and you come out into Times Square. And it's, it was very different from what it is now, but it was just as incredible. Uh, to see all the incredible billboards. And uh, there was Miss, Mr. Peanut in a, a full peanut costume walking around outside the Planters Peanut Store and all the signage. And uh, it was just like a wonderland. And I would just be like, a, you know, going crazy looking at all this stuff. And it, it, like Coney Island, it all burned into my, into my brain. And so I became, really became fascinated uh, on a subconscious level with, lettering and letter forms and signage and all that. At what point did you realize that you could do this as a, as a profession? Um, I didn't really until, until I was in college. Uh, I went to Cooper Union um, and I had a, um, but before that in high school I had a great teacher who, uh, who really encouraged me to go to Cooper Union and uh, to develop my art. And I thought I was going to be a fine artist when I went there. But I soon realized that I was much better at solving problems. Were your, were your parents very supportive of, of you becoming uh, an artist and getting into the creative world? I, um, it was funny because I thought they were, and they were to me. But my, um, my art teacher at, at high school, who I befriended later on in life, I, I went back and found him, and, and we, we really kind of became friends. He told me, I mean, this was after my parents had passed away, that, that he had to convince them that they wanted me to go to law school. And I, I don't even remember them even talking about that fact. But uh, he convinced them that I should go to Cooper Union uh, for art. And, uh, and the, the thing that really convinced them was that he told them it was free. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. So... So I went to Cooper Union. I thought maybe I'd be a painter or a sculptor because I know I, I love to draw. I, I hadn't put all this in my together in my head about all these things that I that were floating in there from when I was a kid, all the signs and lettering and all that. Um, so uh, so as I went through Cooper Union, I realized I, I'm not going to be a painter. Uh, I don't, you know, I, when I'm faced with a blank canvas, uh, nothing comes into my head. But I was very good at solving communication problems. I realized that I'm going to end up in commercial art because I can make a living there. I don't know what I would do in, the, you know, with with fine art. Um, so, yeah. So, the, so then I took. Uh, they didn't have too many uh, in the in the day school. They didn't have too many graphic design classes. So I ended up taking them at night, and uh, I, I just that really sold me that I, I knew this was the direction I needed to go in. Mm. Um, and so that's that was where it, where it started. You know, I always tell, you know, like for me, I come from a musical background as an artist and as a, as a rapper. And so being a fine artist is almost kind of like being a rapper in terms of there's not a 
you're not really solving a problem with your art. It can almost be sometimes self-loathing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but when you can use your talent to help other people, you'll always find uh, a place. You know, if you, you find that to be true. Um, well, what I do, I don't know if that it helps other people uh, so much as just T- totally it does for music, right? Like the cover, the design. That's the first thing that you see. Well, 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 right, right. You know, but it, but it isn't so like so. Um, I'm not like a humanitarian that I'm. I'm you know, like I, I'm. My work is going to you know uplift you know the people. It's really it's really commercial art, and it's it's. Um, I'm doing it for money, and I'm doing it for usually for corporations or for companies. So um, it helps them. And 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 pe and people, you know, uh, I do I do know that people love. I mean, I get fan mail, um, and uh, I know that my work, on some level, touches people. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, and and that's actually uh, more, almost more valuable to me than getting the paycheck. To know that, like, because being a commercial artist. I've never given up on the idea that I have a vision and I know these people want me to solve their problem, but for me, the best way to do it is to, for me to be able to, to impose my vision and still solve their, their problem. And uh, I, I think no matter whether it's music, whether it's graphic design that, or whether it's fine art, good art always strikes emotion, mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. Realness That's will true. always pierce through. Uh, when you got out of Cooper's, uh, Cooper's Union, what was your first uh, uh, okay. opportunity professionally? <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. The very first. Oh, my first job out of Cooper was it, it was kind of it was very telling because it was almost like it it ha- almost happened on purpose, but it didn't. It was like I got a job in this place called Photo Lettering. Uh, and that was in Midtown, and it was a, a. If you, we don't have typesetting houses anymore. What is a typesetting house? Okay, you know, on your on your laptop or on your computer, you ha- you can access all kinds of fonts. Yeah. Before computers, that didn't exist. Wow. You, you know, how did you? If you needed, uh, like, say, you were doing a book cover and you needed typeset for the cover. Yeah. Um, you had to like. You had you had sample books of different type styles, and and you would have to like then call up a type house and send them a like a, a man, either a manuscript or a sheet of paper with everything written out, what you want, what size, which font, and so on. Then you get proofs back. It was a very involved process. Wow! And so photo letter, and, and usually it had been historically it had all been done out of um, lead type, so you know like or or wood type even, uh, so you you would have to set the the type in metal, you ink it, and then you you run it through a press and you you get a, a nice impression on paper of of the type and that was what you would reproduce from. Was there like a popular house? What was it called again? Letter oh, printing oh, house. A, ty- a type house. A type fa- house. Was a there like fa- a popular one? Oh, there were the hundreds. There were hundreds. But oh, they, they were like Kinkos or something, like that type of. Well, not exactly, but but they were okay. they were they were in in Manhattan. They were everywhere. Okay, they were, there were hundreds of them. Okay, and then photo lettering came along, and photo lettering was a photo 
the, their fonts were not on metal, they were on um, negative film. And they would be able to, it was a, a much easier and cleaner way of setting type. And my first job there, well, my, my mother knew somebody who worked, who had a connection or something, and got me an interview with this guy named Ed Bengat. And I didn't know, but Ed Bengat was going to, it was like an historical figure in the, the type community. And I became his assistant. And I learned just about everything I know about lettering from him. And that very first job I got out of Cooper. But that, that job was really going to go nowhere. Uh, so I, le I left there, and then I had a series of other staff jobs culminating in my working in the promotion art department for Vogue and Butterick patterns. Mm. You know, the patterns that maybe your mom would use to sew dresses or create dresses. You okay. Know? Uh, what did you learn from Ed? I learned everything about how to, you know, because I, I wasn't really into lettering and, and uh, but you know how in life you go, <clears throat> you go down certain roads and you, you come to a crossroads and you make a, a turn and then you come to another one, you make another turn and, and that, that's the path of your life. And going to that job somehow reached back into my, to my past where my fascination with all the signage and lettering and banners from Coney Island and Times Square. And um, so I really, I really liked it. And I, I thought that I can do something with this in my, in, you know, in my life. What's, what's important advice you would give to a young person breaking into their career that you learned? Well, first, I think you need to, um, if you want to be in the arts, I think you have to have a passion for what you're doing. You can't just say, I think I, I like that job. It looks like I could make a lot of money. Because yeah, I think you have to put that out of your head and, and just, um, if, if you're serious about being uh, an artist of some kind. Because uh, if you're good, hopefully that will follow. But you have to have the passion for, for what it is you're doing. Uh, that would be my first advice. Uh, and then know know the history of of what you're doing, mm. you know. Um, I've ran into so many musicians that don't don't know the history of you know music. You know, you I mean, you can look anything up on the internet: uh, the history of graphic design, or the history of music, or classical music. Um, uh, it, there's just such a wealth of material there to be tapped into, and uh, it's I think it's just laziness that if you don't. Well, who was your uh, kind of your first big client? Well, when I um, okay, I, I worked at uh, at Butterick Vogue and Butterick, and then I, I started. Uh, I it wasn't I didn't find it satisfying enough, so I started taking on freelance work at night. And taking it home to work on, so I would be working, you know, day and night. And um, at one point, I went to. I, I, so I was taking my portfolio around. That's what you do when you're a graphic artist or an illustrator. You, you, you um, figure out who who are the clients that I want to work for. You call them up and ask, "Can I bring my portfolio and show you?" Portfolio is a like a book of of things that you have that you that you're proud of that you want to impress people with. So I, I took my portfolio uh, at the recommendation of, at one of these. Sometimes you don't get work. Sometimes you just get referrals or recommendations. Oh, you, sh you should go see so-and-so. 
And I went to see this illustrator named Charles White the third, uh, and uh, he said, you have, to, you have to just quit your job and start freelancing, and I'll give you a desk here. And he also kind of started giving me some work uh, to help him with his illustrations. And some of them were for pretty big clients. And so I, I, I got an inside track on how the business worked. How do, how do you deal with clients? Um, and also... How do you deal with clients? Like, what's important in, as far as dealing with a client? Well, that's, that's a, like a whole interview. <laughs> so and and like really quick bullet form of say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you you'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist prescriber or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What are some important things in your world of graphic design that is important or how to communicate with a client? Well, you have, you have, first of all, you have to like uh, ask a lot of questions about what, what, Okay, I always ask why, why, why did you pick me, or uh, what what is it you want to communicate, or what do you like? Show show me examples of the things you you know you like and that you gravitate towards, and maybe it'll give me a clue as to why you think I can do this. And um, but you also have to deal with you know there's politics, there's um, uh, you know the whole money aspect, which most people in my profession prefer not to even bring deal with because they just want to do the work that you know they'll do it for free you know and, uh, and when you're starting out you sometimes you do pretty much you know for a lot of low paying work but you know you have to keep the you know the money you know you can't forget about the money because that's what why you you know you need to live yeah and you and you work you have to realize that your work has a certain value and uh, you can't undersell it um, there's a whole organization called the Graphic Artists Guild that has come up that is formed around the idea of protecting artists in all these types of situations and uh, helping them navigate the world of dealing with clients. Mm. It's it's very complicated, you know, because you're never in the same situation twice. You know, you can say, oh, I learned my lesson in this one, but uh, the next time something comes up, it's completely different. 
and you're you know you're back at square one and how to deal with it. Uh, how, how did the opportunity for you to do the, the Knicks logo? Like, how did that come about? At that point, I I think that was around 19. It was the late 80s. Yeah, and um, I think I, I was I, I was really feeling like my career is now is really starting to move, and like people knew about me, they they knew about my work um, in the field. And I just got a call from um, from the NBA to come in. They 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 wanted to talk to me about some projects, and uh, so you know it was nothing complicated about that. And I said, "Sure, I'll be right there." Uh, and what, what were some of the? They didn't say like what specifically the projects were. They just just, no. co- just come in and yeah, we we want to talk to you about about you know some work and. Uh, so I, I go in and, and I can't remember if the Knicks was the very first. I think there might have been some other smaller projects that came up. No, the Knicks actually was the very first thing I did for them. And um, it was a it was a it was a project that took many months you know, well, from start to finish. Uh, why did the Knicks have to go through a, a rebrand of, of any type? Who, who makes that call? For the team to say like, oh, we're going to go through a rebrand. Is it the team? Is it the NBA? No, it wasn't the team. It was the NBA. And <clears throat> my belief, even to this day, is that the reason they they started doing that, and they hadn't been been doing it much when I started, uh, was for merchandise. To because they needed better marks for their merchandise. Okay. You mean like higher sales? No, they needed better graphics. Okay. Okay. For, the, okay. for their for their all their merchandise, um, for all the teams, because they had really crappy logos. Back then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, like, what were they looking for? Like, what was your first approach with with that? Because it's also a very big. It's not you know. I mean, no offense to the you know, Memphis Grizzlies. It's also New York City. It's the biggest city in the world. It's the basketball mecca. Like, so what was the challenge or what questions did you ask going into making that logo? Well, the, like what I was saying before, I wanted to know, well, what did you see in my work and, and, and what is it that you want to, what is it you want to say with this, with this, you know, this new logo? How, how do you want it to be different from what you already have? Um, uh, what were their answers to that, to those questions? Well, they said, well, it's ironic because what they end, what we ended up with was very similar in a lot of ways to what they had. I don't know if you're aware of what the the previous logo was. It the it, arch with the yeah, it had with yeah. the basketball on the arch. Yeah, yeah. Because um, <clears throat> they told me we want something completely new, and the the big thing that they wanted me to, to do was to insert the Empire State Building somehow into the logo. Okay. Um, which I, I I did many many iterations or sketches. Uh, with showing how they could do that, and uh, with the Empire State Building, and and maybe without it, just other designs, and you know, this was a lot, a lot of back and forth over several months, uh, showing different ideas. You know, can, okay, can you try this? Can you try that? And in the end, they 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 decided to take out the Empire State Building. 
because I think it had something to do with they didn't want to have to pay royalties to to whoever owned the rights to yeah. that. Yeah, was it Trump? Did Trump ever own the Empire State no, Building? No, thank God. Yeah, thank God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but who was the person you were corresponding with? Is this the team? Is this a no, league no, official? It, it was um, uh, a guy in the NBA, uh, an art, a creative director. Okay, okay. So, so when a team goes through a rebrand, a creative director of the league is in charge of the it, rebrand. It, it may, the, I don't know. It may it may not work that way anymore. Okay. I don't know how it works now because it's been so long. But at that point, uh, the, the the NBA was the kind of overarching uh, organization. For, for that and uh, all these teams were subordinate and um they were in charge of you know doing this for the teams at, at how long uh at, at what point in the process did you come up with the design that we know of today it was i guess in the middle but you know the but they still we were seeing uh, looking at other designs and um, then we eventually came back and that design did have an empire state building in it uh, coming out of, through the top, and the, the words "New York" kind of went over the, the the building. It kind of went up in 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 kind of perspective, as if you were standing kind of underneath it, underneath the Empire State Building, kind of following the perspective of the way the logo has a, a certain perspective. Yeah. Um, but they decided to take it out. Uh, what was the 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 moment where they selected the final image that we know of today? Do you know the story behind that? Getting the confirmation of this is what it's going to be. There wasn't any big story. They just I just went in one day and we they said this is the one. Just go to finish. Do the finished art. Oh, so what does that mean? Do the finished art like do? Okay, the, so I'm sorry. So I I prepare. You know, I start out very much like an illustrator works with. Um, I do rough ideas in pencil form. Very okay. rough pencil. It's kind of scribbly. And then uh, from there, um, I, I usually don't show those to a client because I'm just doing that for myself. And I do a ton of them. And then uh, I kind of, at some point, I'll look through all those rough sketches and I, and I just put little check marks to ones that I think might have some potential to be developed further. And then uh, so that I do that. And those are the ones I, I they're still pencil, just black, black pencil on tracing paper i'll tighten them up a bit to the point where i think i think uh, these guys will understand where i'm going if i show them at this point so I, I i go in and i bring those roughs there may be a dozen or 10 or something like that and then we we discuss that and and you know exactly what you might think then we go to a a tighter stage after that which is um Slightly tighter drawings, and maybe with an indication of how I want the color. Uh, I may I may be doing five of those, and then uh, I'm indicating color. And I at, at the, then now I would do it on the computer, and it would it would look perfect and slick and everything. But then I I, I use colored pencils. Mm. I mean, just nothing nothing that sophisticated about it. it just I, I would just color it in the way I thought. Uh, I had some, you know, they were pretty. They weren't just the kind of colored pencils you buy at the uh, at Rite Aid or something. They, you know, they, you go to an art store and there's. I had a set of probably over a hundred pencils, with different different uh, permutations of the colors, and uh, and then that's where that's kind of 
getting towards the end of the process, and then they kind of have to make their final selection. Okay. Okay. From there, uh, or then, or then maybe we, we we may go back for another round. Okay. It just depends. Um, when they made the selection, do you remember the first time seeing that logo anywhere, like on a uniform or on a billboard? <clears throat> um, well, uh, as far as that experience is concerned, I I I, I can talk. I don't really remember the exact first time I saw it, but uh, I, I remember the first time I saw anything that I did like that, that was all of a sudden was everywhere. And that was, I worked with an illustrator on the uh, the Yellow Pages. Do you remember the Yellow Pages? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, we did, he did a Yellow Pages cover and he, he hired me to do the words Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, and, and so on. For, this is all for the, all, a different one for each of the five boroughs. And I just remember it was just so amazing when all of a sudden they came out, you know, they were just like everywhere. And, you, you know, and that's when, you know, you could go in on the street, a phone booth, and, and you'd pull up the phone book and yeah. there it was. <laughs> or, or into a luncheonette or, or whatever. And it was just everywhere. And I, I just like, I was like amazing, you know. Uh, what is that like to... You know, like I was walking through the streets today and you see everyone wearing that logo, like the New York Knicks. They're the, it's the Mecca of basketball. I mean, I'm, it, I'm it's not actually just the team, it's the Mecca of the sport. Yeah. You know, so what does it feel to, you know, come back from LA and walk through the streets and you see people with that logo on? How, how does that make you feel? Well, I, you know, I've kind of gotten used to it, but um, I, I always think I can't believe they're still using that after. Like, <laughs> <laughs> after let's see 90, 90 uh, after uh 88 20 89. 20 no yeah 28 years wow 28 years <laughs> and i think <laughs> they're just going to keep that forever i hope they do but you know i i'm always surprised that they still have it you know and it, it makes me feel good yeah because uh you know i'm new york city to me is the greatest city in the world and i love new york so to think that your logo is up there with the Yankee logo or you know, even like the maple leaf for the parks. Yeah. You know, is, is that recognizable with the city? Yeah. You know, and we, we touched on this earlier in the interview about, you know, um, you know, it's not always about the money. It's about, you know, it's almost like you, you're, you're always living. You're always breathing. Like great art lives on way beyond us. Right. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, no. No, it's definitely a thrill, and I've had a few things like that in my in my career, and uh, always wondering, will there be another? <laughs> always, <laughs> always. Um, you know, before we get out of here, uh, I ask this question to to every person who's been on the podcast, um, because I think every person that I've interviewed has achieved a level of greatness and embodies greatness inside of them. And I think our listeners also want to be great. And everyone wants it. It's on, it's on this pursuit of greatness. But but you can't have that. And then my my thinking is that you can't have that as a goal. You can't like go into acting saying I want to be a star. You go into acting because you love acting, and then if you become a star, you know you just be the best that you can be. Mm. You know I, th I I I don't think that's a good goal though to to see I, I want I want to be famous. Well, famous is different than great. Okay. Do you agree? Yeah. I feel like greatness is something that um, well, usually it's, they, they go hand it's, in, in hand. it's internal for me. Fame is outside right. gratification. 
But okay. I want to always, always want to look at my work. I want to look, you know, look back at this interview and said, I gave a great interview. I don't care. Ten people heard it. I gave a great interview, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But in order to be great, it comes with sacrifice. And I think that's you have to balance in your life, you know, to be great at for Michael Jordan to be great at basketball. You know, there's only 24 hours in a day. It means that you weren't great at something else. Mm, um, right. What have you sacrificed to be great in your profession? Um, well, you could ask my... Laura, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, I, 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 ended up, I ended up working all the time. You know, and uh, to the exclusion probably of having uh, a richer life while we were living in New York, it was just always working. And I felt like I always, I, you know, I always felt like I had to, to be doing that. And I had this compulsion. And only now I'm, I'm kind of letting up a little, letting up a little bit uh, on that. Um, I think, you know, I, I you know, I, the thing is, I, I love what I do, so it doesn't feel like a sacrifice when I'm working all the time. But um, I, I guess that the people around me uh, may not be as thrilled about it. And, uh, and I think the sacrifice is, so, is somewhere in there, if, if you follow me. Because you, you know what? I um, had a, the opportunity to interview... Susan Rogers, she recorded Princess Purple Rain album. And she was talking about her background and what propelled her to, to be great. And she was saying that there were things uh, that have to drive you. There has to be something that drives you. Uh, maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fear of not wanting to go back to where you were if you grew up in poverty. Uh, for her, she told the story of being in an abusive relationship. Um, and that abusive relationship with her ex-husband drove her to just never want to go back, and she just kept moving forward. Like, what drives you? Well, I think initially what, what drove me was I wanted my parents to be proud of me. You know, and that was, a, that was huge for me. And um, because I was always, you know, my brother was more like the bad boy, and he, he, you know, he just kind of did whatever he wanted. But I was always trying to please them. And... Um, I remember a story about I, I did uh, quite a few time covers, covers for time that were you know co- more like illustrated covers, and I remember when uh, I would just so want my parents, my father, to be you know proud of me, and I'd call them up and say, "Mom, Dad, uh, I just did a time cover. It's going to be on the newsstands on on Monday or whatever," and they'd go, "Oh, uh, we." we We'll make it to the store on Wednesday, uh, and then and then I'd hear my father saying, "Well, uh, this is good, but this is not your best work, you know." And like it's like, what what do I have to do to yeah. you know to uh, to get them to be? Pr- I I know they were proud of me, but like uh, it was hard to hear things like that. Yeah, you know, no matter you know uh, how young we, you know how young or old we are. We still have that little kiddedness. There's a point in our lives where we still are little kids. Yeah, you know what I mean. No, absolutely. I I, I still feel that. <laughs> so my my parents are gone, but I'm you know maybe I'm still 
Maybe they're proud of me up there. For sure they are. <laughs> Michael, it's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for just coming through and talking with me for a little bit. You're the man. I really yeah, appreciate been, this. It's been a pleasure. You're an inspirational guy. Thank you. We out of here. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Michael Dorrit. You can find Michael on social media by finding the links in the description of this bio. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. And before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other podcast, OPP, Other People's Podcast, which highlights my favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I have the link to that in the description of this episode as well. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off. Till next time.